Thanks, Michelle. Um, so we actually have three of our team here today. James McMichael is here as well, and that's uh, Tobias. So you'll see the three of us are in the workshop later this afternoon. Uh, so for this part of the presentation, what we really want to do is give you a little bit more of a historical perspective of sustainability, really specific to this industry, product creation, uh, the textile, uh, apparel, outdoor kind of industry, and give you the perspective of why we are here today and, and kind of what that landscape looks like. Uh, and then give you a little bit of our own perspective on what we consider like integrated sustainability. What's the best way to approach that with, within your organization? The workshop's gonna really dive into that kind of integrated sustainability, help you navigate the complex landscape a little bit more, a little bit more kind of open discussion and dialogue around that from the different roles and different perspectives within uh, your organizations. Um, and also try to bridge that gap between what is public perception of sustainability in your company versus what's reality. Right, and, and so that's going to be a lot of the workshop later today. Uh, Michelle did a great job just introducing us. We're a small group that, that formed last year. Uh, and really we are, one of the reasons we formed was we saw a gap actually in the industry. Uh, kind of apparel, outdoor, fashion, textile based really, really the apparel industry. That there's been no one specific that there are sustainability consultancies that are out there, but they may be working for Unilever and Coca-Cola one day and then try to help you with your small business the next day. And this doesn't match up. We're all practitioners. We've all done this uh, within brands themselves. We use sustainability as a lens to do our work. And so we've come together because to, we've found the need in the, uh, in the industry. And maybe one easy way to sum it up is is we have these shared values, but complementary experiences, right? So that brings us together. We have a really, uh, we complement our skills and experiences, uh, so we have a really well-rounded team. Actually, before I even jump into that, maybe to open up real quick. A lot of different people here, different perspectives, different types of companies. Uh, when you think about sustainability, what are the, if we were to create a word cloud, what are those words that would be jump out to you from the, the world of sustainability in this kind of product creative uh, environment? Just kind of throw them out. Pack, excess packaging, great. Recyclable. Repurpose and, and Durability. Durability, excellent. Repurpose. I'm sorry? Closed loop, excellent. Non-toxic, non yes. Care, yep, product care. Life cycle. Animal husbandry, big one. Awareness, great. So, all great concepts. Um, we're not going to go into the details of those. We're not, what we want to do is put those in perspective. So, you kind of just touched on the majority of, the, of these. Here's the pea soup. Here's a whole bunch of the sustainability organizations, practices uh, that are out there today. And I think if you just join all these and do all these, you'll be fine, right? Wow. <laughs> Not easy, right? It's really hard to get through all of this. What's a priority for you? Which ones do you focus on? Which one is not as meaningful for you or your company or your, your product type? And so what we're trying to do is help navigate to get through all of this because it's just a lot of certifications, a lot of labels. What's meaningful and important to you? And it's different for everybody. It's not just, I, I can't tell you that answer and you know, just uh, uh, for the whole group, it's very individual. And so 
how do we get to this point of all those certifications and organizations and platforms and services that are out there? So we're gonna take a little historical perspective on this. And when we think about especially textile-based product or product in general, the two lenses we always use are really environmental and social. Uh, these really define sustainability. Uh, maybe the third that we're not gonna talk about is really the advocacy or um, you know, the advocacy work you may do as a, as a company, uh, but really within product and supply chains uh, and product design, it's really about environmental and social. So we'll kick it off with social. And so we're gonna go through a couple, a, a couple catastrophes essentially um, that have really shaped workers' rights and social compliance throughout the years. If you go back to the early 1900s, um, all the apparel was made domestically. Uh, there wasn't much offshore at that point. But there was a huge fire in lower Manhattan in the, uh, in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And essentially because of cramped conditions, overcrowding, poor building safety, uh, a lot of the problems that you still exist today in many cases, uh, there are 146 people were killed jumping out of windows to their deaths uh, because they had no exits. Uh, huge, huge incident that happened there. And this really brought light to just general worker safety. Um, out of this disaster formed a group, and that group is essentially now OSHA, um, Occupational Safety and Health, uh, Safety, uh, and Health Administration. Uh, and it also created uh, about a decade or so later, but again, based, catalyzed by this, were things like minimum wage, uh, collective bargaining. Uh, so some of the positive attributes that came out. So the whole early, 1900s was really about just basic worker safety, worker rights. Uh, and as you jump, whoop, there we go. So not much changed throughout, uh, you know, in the product world, it was still all made domestically and it was kind of that, that OSHA was a governing factor. If you jump forward to, into the 80s, this is when the trend towards outsourcing became way more important. And product was not just made, being made here, but it started being pushed overseas. And there's a country called Saipan, or an island, Saipan, that is, to put it in perspective, is close to Guam. It's part of a US territory. And so they found this little loophole. We can make it over in this little island, label it made in USA. The difference is Saipan didn't have the same immigration and labor laws that you would expect from a made in USA product. And so when this was uncovered, uh, it really gave rise to what we call today the, the modern, or not the modern, the term, the sweatshop. They were using immigrant labor from Asia to bring in cheap labor, essentially slave labor coming from Asia to make our product that said made in USA. Not good. So the output of this was that people realized that they started outsourcing their product, they had to actually put some codes in there, like what are the requirements? So what came out of this was really a more widespread adoption of, of companies uh, using a code of conduct. And then if you are outsourcing your product, you have to have some independent monitoring of that. Like, what is happening in that factory over there? So that's, that's what gave rise out of this. When you say the word sweatshop, who comes to mind, right? Does everyone remember this? Kathy Lee Gifford. So this was a major incident in the 90s where it brought what was maybe in Saipan was maybe a, a couple activist communities knew about what was happening, but this brought it to the public light. What's happening? My, children, my clothes are being made by children? Really? Um, so this became a, a, a public phenomenon. And when, when you think about it, 
the cause of this was really something that we can all control in, in our companies now, but it was high demand. High demand created larger orders, and this larger orders created the need to subcontract, right? So instead of level loading the production, they get this su super peak production, and next thing you know, the factory that was supposed to be in North Carolina or wherever outsources it to the company in Alabama. They outsource it to the company in New Jersey, who outsources it to some group in Nicaragua with 13 and 14 year olds working 20 hour days at 10 cents an hour, and this incident happens. Around the same time, some of you guys may be familiar with this image here, uh, obviously local brand. The, before the advent of social media, Life Magazine captured this in a story and published this picture. So it's a boy, a young boy in Pakistan sewing Nike uh, soccer balls. And so this again brought the issue of child labor in the supply chain. And I think I have a quote here. What's interesting about th this event, not that it happened or that it was caught, but this is the first time that a brand started realizing, up to this point, all the brands said, well, I don't, that's just my supply chain. I don't speak for them. I just gave them the order. They can, how do I control that? Uh, and so Phil Knight, uh, about two years after this had happened, uh, here's a quote that he had from a press conference. The Nike product has become synonymous with slave wages, forced overtime, and arbitrary issues. That's pretty big, right? To think your brand is at risk, right? You, I, anyone who remembers the, the protests that were happening, consumer activists that were happening during that time period. But on the positive side, they started to take control. This is a turning point for Nike and other brands to say, I'm not gonna just push it out. We're gonna say that we have control over this. We have accountability to, to act. And so this gave birth essentially to the modern day CSR, corporate social responsibility programs. Does this look familiar to most people? Anyone in apparel? Bangladesh, Rana Plaza, 2013. Uh, big cracks in the building. Workers are still, the workers don't want to go inside. They're forced to go inside and work, and building collapses. Over 1,000 people die. Biggest catastrophic event in, uh, in the apparel industry ever. So, th this, well, this is, horrible um, as an incident in and of by itself, uh, but, it, it, but it did create a lot of actions. One locally, uh, there, was, there was two organizations, one in Europe, essentially one in the US of brands that come together that started to work on improving building safety in, in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a, it's the second largest exporter of apparel behind China and has a lot of this ready to wear garments, like really fast fashion, move, moving garments quick through the cycle. And, this brought this not just on the workers' rights, but on the building safety, because the infrastructure there is not very robust, and so this was a, a not a common occurrence, but a, let's say a widespread issue. And so local things were happening there, uh, which is these the Accord and the Alliance, but it also gave way, up to this point through the birth of, and, and the rise of, of, of social responsibility, every company, every brand, had their own approach to doing it. And, we're all in here, most people are in brands, are making product, they're selling product, we're, we're competing. But we shouldn't be competing on workers' rights, right? Like basic minimum rights to life shouldn't be something we compete on. Uh, so that's what's happening right now, and this is a social labor convergence. We're, we're working through essentially a program to have an, an approach, a common approach that all brands can take to go impact 
worker rights in their supply chain, right? Let's not, let's not differentiate. And, and the reason for this is there's so much fatigue on just the auditing and the auditing process, and we're not actually making really strong impact. If we can get past this auditing, we can actually start engaging more with that supply chain and actually making more impact instead of just going through the nuts and bolts of auditing all the time. And that's what is the trend that's happening right now. A little bit closer to home, you think, oh, Bangladesh, that's pretty far away from me. I don't, you know, I make it right here in my factory downstairs. Well, there's been two modern, uh, or, or, or two legislations over the past couple of years on modern slavery. Uh, and these are really interesting. They don't really have a requirement to them. All they ask is that you have to communicate publicly. Any company over a certain size has to, that does business in either California or the UK, has to publicly communicate what they're doing to eradicate slavery in their supply chain. So if you look at any publicly traded company or any company or any company in this industry of any size, at the bottom will say US California or California Transparency Act and click on it. And there's two or three pages that they'll write about what they're doing to eradicate slavery. There's not a requirement to eradicate it, it's just asking you to publicly communicate how you're doing that. Same thing in the UK. What's interesting, you're like, oh, they must be talking about Bangladesh. No, they're, they're talking about product coming in to their st state or country or whatever. Um, but they're also talking about within their own jurisdiction, modern slavery that's happening in California or in UK itself. Really interesting, we think that it's far away in, in Bangladesh or in some foreign country, but it's not, it's local as well. So what does this look like from a timeline? Um, back in late 90s is when the first original standard came out, came out SA 8000, essentially it's like an ISO quality standard, just the guidelines of, of how to approach it. Uh, and with that came some organizations. There's lots more organizations that get built up, toy industry, electronic industry, fair labor in the US, essentially the eth ethical trading initiative is more of a European based of the same thing or similar. Uh, and then you see the rise of the industry organizations because you have all these nonprofits that are coming up to, to give solutions and then the industry organizations like, wow, this is getting really complicated. How do we pull these things together? And so, mid-90s, mid-late-90s, who are some of the early adopters of this? Uh, public pressure. These brands, I believe, don't quote me, I believe all these brands were actually in Saipan um, and were part of the lawsuits that occurred there. Uh, all of them settled, except Levi's, who did not settle because they said they were using a code of conduct at that time. So one of the first people, one of the first companies to use a code of conduct effectively um, it slightly protected them, but what it did, it just it, it energized their to to, to, uh, to to build their code of conduct and build their social compliance program. So these were the early adopters, essentially, of, of CSR back in the 90s. Now I'm going to jump to environmental. Uh, we're taking a different approach here. We're taking more of a literature approach. A uh, couple, couple things that happened. If you go back to the 60s, the birth of the environmental movement, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. So essentially she questions science, like what's, what's the role of science in this and how far can it go? She essentially used DDT, which is hazardous chemical being used as a pesticide uh, and, and its impacts on flora, fauna, um, the local ecology and, and humans and human health. Uh, so this, this gave birth essentially to modern day environmentalism. And then the limits of growth. 
This is funded by the Club of Rome, and it was a bunch of scientists from, uh, from MIT. And they looked at planetary boundaries, right? So it's the first introduction of planetary boundaries, uh, finite resources, right? It's bringing this to light. You go into the 80s, our common future. This is from the United Nations. And so the United Nations, this is their first major report on uh, sustainable development. That, that is pretty broad, right? That's about uh, countries, and, and you know, it's not really about our industry as much, but it's really uh, bringing awareness to the issues. A little bit more modern, uh, Inconvenient Truth, everyone should be familiar with that. That was 10 years ago. Uh, Al Gore, just uh, at Sundance uh, this winter, they had the 10-year anniversary of this, and they launched the sequel to it. But what was important about The Inconvenient Truth, it was really about education. It was education, education at a mass scale of, of climate change. Tom's River, uh, one of the most compelling books I've read recently, and it's really about industrial pollution. Uh, they kind of break it into two parts. The, the beginning, it really chronicles what happened up in Love Canal, which is uh, uh, up, upstate New York. And essentially had uh, an industrial pollution web, uh, waste site from a textile uh, chemical maker. And they were polluting the ground and essentially having health concerns from, from the population of this town. They had to pick up and move the town. And obviously, there are all the, the hazards of the, the human health issues that were happening. But they ended up having to pick up and move the town. It cost a lot of money. The chemical company wasn't in business anymore. Anyway, who's going to pay for it? This brought legislation of what is called a Superfund site, right? So if there's a Superfund site, the federal government comes in, taxpayer money, cleans it up, disposes of it. To this day, it's still just a, a barren wasteland of an old town. Uh, they demolish all the towns, but the streets are still sitting there. It's kind of eerie. The bulk of the book, though, is about Tom's River, New Jersey. And it was another chemical manufacturer there who was a Swiss-based company who couldn't produce in Switzerland anymore because of strict regulations. They came to the US and figured out where they can beat those regulations. They ended up here. After polluting the groundwater, um, it, after getting caught by pu putting the, the waste in the stream, in actually Tom's River, that flew out, flew out to the ocean, uh, they, they started dumping it on the ground. And they kept buying more property and dumping it on the ground. Well, it would go through the wastewater, and it kept coming up through the, waste, or through, through the city water, or, you know, the well water, through the community. And all these health effects started happening. And then later, when they got caught with that, they built a pipe all the way out to the ocean. Uh, to put Tom's River in a, in a geographic map, it's about 15 minutes away from both the hometown of Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen. So it's a good place to visit. Um, but what was really important about this was this happened in the, in, in the 70s and 80s when all that pollution was happening. But after that, there was all these health effects and it became a cancer cluster. So I grew up about 45 minutes away from here. And in the late 80s, Tom's River, the town, um, was actually in the, world, the Little League World Series. So here I am, 12 years old, admiring local teams in the Little League World Series. But we knew them as the kids with cancer, right? Like, that's, that's how I grew up knowing this town. It was from toxic or, or industrial pollution of dyes and chemicals for this industry. So super impactful book for me, highly recommend it. Um, you know, more recently, it, it's, now you think, well, that was in the 70s, 80s. We've cleaned up the US, and we've kind of offshored all of our pollution someplace else. It's really interesting, uh, marketplace.org, NPR 
uh, podcast, has a series called We Used to Be China. It's amazing. Uh, but really looking at air pollution and how does air pollution, the, the challenges that we had and still do have, and a lot of how that is played into what's happening in China right now. Last topic on this, I'm not sure how to, how to address this one really well, but microplastics in the marine environment. I think when most people think of, of ocean plastics, they think of like bottles and bottle caps washing up on shore, the garbage patch, right? Let's just like mechanically separate these things and go recycle them, clean them up. Well, I put this here because this is really modern and new. It's only five to 10 years old that the science has been evolving on this. What we're talking about is microplastics, things under five millimeter, often little fibers. Um, they go into the marine environment and we can't clean them up necessarily. They get into the food chain. And the problem is they go into the small fish, bigger fish, bigger fish, and we eat them. Uh, not only harming the fish and wildlife, but they're coming into our bodies. And these little microparticles are essentially sponges and they adsorb and absorb hazardous chemicals and then they get passed through the food chain. Mercury in fish, the heavy metals in fish, this is a big cause of all of that. Well, the science is unclear. They're still figuring out standard, NOAA is, you know, um, there's a lot of science groups, including like government, like NOAA, and they're still trying to figure out uh, what are the causes, how do we standardize the testing? We're not even at solutions yet. We're, you know, there's people in the apparel industry who are starting to think about solutions, but we're not even at solutions. We're still defining the problem. But the, what this report came out in 2017, so I'll tell you how recent it is, the impact, synthetic textiles are more than 30% and are the largest contributor of microplastics in the marine environment. Ouch. We're the problem. So we're not sure what the solutions are yet. This is gonna be one to, to really keep monitoring. This will be a book at some point, right? Like, I think that's why it belongs on this slide. This is out there. So what are some other major events that have really shaped, uh, shaped the industry? And to me, probably none in recent time have, have shaped it more than, than this. So some, some activism here. Greenpeace launched a report in 2011, Dirty Laundry, and they really highlighted toxic chemistry coming out of the wastewater of two different Chinese manufacturers of textiles, right? We kind of knew it was happening. We were already working on a lot of systems here. It didn't bring the issue to light, but it did bring it to the public environment. Um, the second report came out a few months later, and they don't, not only showed that, hey, there's polluting in the supply chain, but they linked it to product. And obviously those products have labels on them. 15 brands were called out there. And so those brands were called out and with public pressure were kind of coerced or however you want to talk about it into committing to having to discharging less hazardous chemicals. So they essentially had public commitment statements, those 15 brands, to zero discharge of hazardous chemicals by 2020. Sounds good, right? What does zero discharge mean? What's a hazardous chemical? Right, there's, this, there's a lot of gray zone in that. So this created a lot of action. There was already a lot of action that was happening. Um, but this put a lot of people, this, this put a lot of public pressure and it built up a lot of programs to actually, um, to move forward. This actually created a group called ZDHC, Zero Discharge of Hazardous Chemicals, uh, to actually create that structure and the framework and to define some of these terms, to get agreement with the NGOs uh, on what progress is, what the end goal is, and so there's a lot of work on that. And then, okay, great, but that's over in, 
Taiwan or China or Thailand or somewhere I'm making my textiles, but it's not. A few months later, they, they published a report that showed that the pro the, there's chemicals on your product that don't always get washed off, but within the first one to three wash cycles in your home laundry, these uh, endocrine disruptors, uh, NPEs, get washed off into your supply chain, or sorry, washed off in, from your washer and they go into your wastewater treatment. So we've taken pollution that we thought we offshored someplace and we put it back into our local environments. Right? So we, the consumers brought in here. So throughout the years, they continue to publish more reports, different NGOs. There's a couple in the fashion industry uh, that are really highlighting some, some bad practices, linking some of this pollution to fashion companies, not just the outdoor companies. And there's two of them that are uh, based on kids' product. One's on like kid product, and one's on like youth product. The little monsters in your closet, something like that. So really showing that hey, this is on all textiles, but they're essentially reaching a different audience by saying hey, it's in kids' textiles, right? They energize a different group. One relevant to this crowd, uh, more on the more technical side, is is this report that came out in 2014, Footprints in the Snow, and essentially showed that PFCs. Uh, perfluorocarbonates, uh, which DWRs, water repellencies, right? It's in, we're in, we're in Portland, right? Uh, the jackets that everyone's wearing, they pretty much have these PFCs in them. And th this put a lot of public pressure to eliminate, and this is a lot of part of the, the zero discharge by 2020 goals, is how do you get better chemistry or elimination of that chemistry um, over a period of time? They not only linked it to companies, but they said, hey, it's not just jackets, it's in backpacks, it's in tents, and it's another product. And then they showed that it's not just in the product, it's in the environment, it's in the air. And so they actually tested the air quality of branded retail stores that were selling a lot of this product and are showing all the contamination and the pollution in the air itself, not just in the product. And then they actually go to the hotspots of where the chemistry is being made, again, Oh, it must be somewhere in China. No, it's in Europe. There's three or four main locations. The Ohio Valley is one of those. Places in Europe are a big one, and obviously in, in places like Shanghai as well. Again, I want to point out, what these reports do is they put a lot of pu public pressure out there. I don't agree with the approach necessarily, uh, and I would say I was part of working groups years before these reports came out on making, finding better alternatives within the supply chain and of the actual chemical itself, and then working with textile suppliers to make some of that change. But you can argue it wasn't happening fast enough, and this put a lot of priority to make it happen faster, but it, they weren't identifying issues, they were just bringing it to the wider audience. And so if you look at the timeline, from an environmental perspective, you see it's a little bit skewed to the right, it's a little bit later than the social. The social world started happening in the 90s, a little bit more the environmental started happening more in the 2000s. Early adopters here, Esprit with her e-collection, uh, early 90s. This was amazing. Um, it was led by Linda Gross, who would be part of this community here. Um, she and her team, they just they looked at organic cotton, but not they looked at the dyes and the chemicals. They looked at the trims, and they're essentially a skunk works of, of eco-design, um, way, way, way ahead of their time. Uh, Patagonia, they started doing some of that research as well. They would go to the farms, be, and were just appalled by the, the huge amount of pesticide use. So that was a, one of their big factors in making the change over. 1992, a couple t-shirts get launched. 1996, 100%, they made the change. Organic cotton wasn't even available for them really at that scale. 
they made this huge leap of faith and have followed through with it ever since and went 100% organic cotton from that point on. Nike was already a pretty big company that's, at that time. They had a different approach to it. If they wanted to go 100% organic, they would outstrip supply. Now you got all these traceability issues and fraud happening everywhere. So they found a way to just take 3% of their cotton. So cotton shirt, 3% of the content of that was made out of organic cotton. And that, they were the number one largest, largest buyer of organic cotton by doing that. In 2001, they upped that to 5%. And there might be someone here who knows better than me. I've, I think they're somewhere around 10% now. Uh, and between them and H&M, I think they're one or two in the world of the buyer of organic cotton. So you can argue, hey, what's 10% or what's 5%? But they're the number one or number two buyer in the world of organic cotton. They're promoting the industry and doing great. Um, but that was their approach. So that's kind of the historical perspective. And if you look at all those organizations together, there is a little bit of a rhyme or reason to this, um, but it takes a lot to, to dig into that. So we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit more here. This is kind of an eye chart, but I just want to show like what's that broad landscape look like when you think about sustainable. This gets a little bit more into product, right? A little bit more creative side. And we're going to look at brand and product and, and kind of the supply chain or value chain. And we look at brand. There's been such a change over the past decade. If you go back 10 years ago, a CSR report or, or sustainability report, it was like, hey, I make 1,000 SKUs, but I put a recycled content in three board shorts. Aren't I cool? Right? I mean, that was, the, that was the talk a year or a decade ago. It's very, very different. These are reports, uh, there's a Nike and Adidas report right there, the first two from this year. They're not talking about recycled content on their cover, some micro adjustment that they made. They're talking about sustainable innovation. They've made the shift from what sustainability used to be was risk management. They, they've gone beyond optimization. Uh, packaging is a great example. How do we just take a little bit of waste out of the supply chain? How do we just do a little bit better? How do we create a KPI and just try to achieve 5% better, right? That's optimization. They've jumped ahead and went to innovation. And they're kind of the leaders in this of you know, something like the, like the Flyknit. They've done it for many years behind the scenes with chemistry of their outsoles and with uh, things like Flyknit, zero waste, um, manufacturing flexibility, not, less of the social issues. And look at Adidas. This is their, their most recent report. Calling all creators. That is the front title of their sustainability report, right? This is not about saving X percent of water or turning your lights off or using recycled content. Calling all creators. This is a game changer, right? This is completely different than what you think about sustainability. This is a very targeted, strategic approach um, to managing. This is one of their pillars of their business now. It's not some little side job that someone's doing to say, you know, put re recycled content into a board chart. H&M, huge, huge company. Um, and their sustainability report, like H&M, what are they doing? Well, one, they're the number one or number two buyer of organic cotton. 100% leading the change, right? I mean, they're not doing it maybe from an innovative perspective, but they want to be leaders in this, in this movement. Uh, you know, REI, sorry, that's a, that's a year old, but they do a great, uh, a great report as well. Not all their product is, you know, they, they bring in a lot of, product from other companies. So a lot of their focus is, uh, is on the environment and, and, and other ways to contribute, plus their own supply chain product. Uh, but something else I think is interesting to point out is caring. 
caring is doesn't have as much control. They have a lot of brands that are at varying degrees uh, within, within their portfolio. But what they did is they put out big goals. 2025, 2025 they're putting out big strategic goals that, what is that, 10, um, 10 years? Where are we at? Yeah, less, almost 10 years away. Uh, and making it really strategic. This is what we're going to go after. Uh, it's not about what they've done as much. They're probably a little behind some of the other leaders up here, but they're really putting it out there. This is gonna be one of our pillars and this is what we're standing for. And you're like, okay, there's probably a bunch of fluff inside of there. It's not. Here's an example of Adidas here. This is their, their cheat sheet again, essentially. They have one for product or one for environment um, and one product and one for social. So this is just their, their one pager for product, right? Like we value water. We innovate materials and processes and we conserve energy. These are specific. If you go back to that kind of pea soup, they didn't say we're going to do all this. They're probably doing everything at some minimum level. But they, they focused. They, they focused in on a couple things that are meaningful to them, their supply chain, their product, and their consumer, and that's what they're going after. If you look at H&M, again, most people probably don't think of them as leaders in here, but look what they're calling out. This is, this is their table of contents, 100% circular and renewable, 100% fair and equal. They're not there, it's a journey, right? But they're, they're putting the goal out there and that's where they're working towards. It's amazing to see that from where we were five to 10 years ago and what these reports look like, if they even existed at all. So I'm using a lot of big companies here um, because it's easy to illustrate, it's publicly available information and they're really good about being transparent with it, right? So I'm not sharing anyone's secrets or something. But what does it mean for me? Um, you know, I work in a million dollar startup company. I work for a small company we manufacture downstairs with the local guy, right? How do I interpret this? Well, every brand is on their own curve and every brand's at a different place. And from the very beginning, you have some basic compliance related issues to some really high level reporting and footprinting and things up at the higher level, trainings and, and engagement. So everyone has their own journey and everyone's somewhere else along the path. What we've seen, though, is if you take all the sustainability reports of today, and you look at if you you, know, you can just Google like 2020 goals for a, a company, sustainability goals. There's tons of stuff that pops up. They're all publishing what their what their objectives and goals are for the next five years or by 2020 or some time period. And these are the things that we're seeing mostly, right? Industry collaboration. That's huge. Again, this is pre-competitive. I think I started getting this work 10 years ago. Well, formally 10 years ago, I was doing it. As, at, when I was at, at the North Face, I was doing it behind the scenes for many years before then. But when the OIA created the Sustainable Working Group 10 years ago, I've always been part of that. Uh, and that's been most, one of the most rewarding groups that I've been part of. I was on the advisory council there for five years as well. But the industry collaboration there is amazing. Sitting around in a group of people like this, talking pre-competitively um, about really important issues was, to me, it was a game changer personally. Uh, women empowerment has been a big issue, not just like social compliance, but what's a specific issue when you're going into a factory that you're trying to do? Um, you know, a couple companies have focused on that. Zero discharge is huge, you kind of mentioned that. Sustainable cotton, especially in the fashion side of the world, the more technical is not as much, but on the fashion side, they're trying to go to more responsibly sourced cotton. It's not just organic as the only high bar anymore. There's lots of things in between where organic is and where traditional is. There's other options in there. And they're just trying to pick something that's better. It doesn't have to be the highest level standard ever, but they're trying to find something that's better than traditional. And so 
you know, again, for the, uh, the creative crew here, what, what, are, what are some some basics? And this is a little bit we're going to try to get more focus on and more open discussion in the workshop later is something more, a little more practical for everyone as well. Um, but what are, what are some of the things that are out there from a, from a product perspective? Because we just, we just kind of talked about brands. Now we'll jump into product a little bit. So, you know, digital printing. Uh, I work with one company who's pretty much basing their whole supply chain based on digital printing because they want fast to market and they want a uh, high level of variation. But what's really cool is there's no dying, I mean, that's the dying process, right? Dying and finishing is the number one polluter. The dying and finishing process is the major pollution of, of our industry and we're the number one or number number two polluter in the, in, in the world. This takes away a ton of it. Zero waste patterning, amazing. Um, the flexibility in manufacturing, the lack of waste that's happening here is just phenomenal. Uh, 3D printing, you need things from zipper poles and, and little buckles and stuff to be able to prototype and do things quickly, right? These are design resources that have a huge sustainability impact as well. Uh, Amazon, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, they just patented, uh, I'm not even sure how, we'd, how I'd describe it, they, they patented uh, a quick to market supply chain owning essentially this process of, of taking fabric, printing it, uh, going right to the, the Gerber, cutting it, sewing it, distributing it, all within like this little tiny micro ecosystem. There's really no, there's no waste that's coming out of that process. Yeah, there's still a little bit of fabric waste, but talk about local you know, manufacturing. They can, they can be pumping out millions of garments in a factory that, in a building this size practically. Uh, it's really amazing, they just patent that concept. Uh, technology plays a huge role, so here, you know, look at like PLM solutions or, or technology solutions. This is actually an auditing report. You're on an app, you're in a factory. How many times do you go to your factory, whether it's over in LA or over in, in Bangladesh, and you just want to capture stuff? So like auditing reports that are happening real time. Um, they're doing the same for like product development as well. So bring in technology solutions and just take waste out. Take the amount of sampling that's out of there. Take the amount of travel that's out of there. Um, there's so much that can happen with, with technology. Fit. Some of these so small startup companies we work for, they're growing so fast, they're venture capital fund, it's all about top line revenue, but they have 60% return rates, right? So what's, and from a technical perspective, I think of a return as product quality, right? Like, what do we do wrong and we, how can we fix that? It's a warranty issue. But for this, it's not, it's fit, it's, it's consumer preference. I didn't like it, it didn't fit me or whatever. Standardization of fit just seems like, ah, oh, that's, you know, we should do that. 60% return rate, talk about sustainability, waste just in the packaging and the shipping and all of that, and what, what happens to that product? Which kind of leads then, end of life. Renewal workshop, new organization that's just 30 minutes away from here on the river. Um, they're taking product that doesn't have a purpose anymore, it got damaged somehow, or it is returned and it can't go back to prime, uh, go back into the market at full price. They're cleaning, repackaging, uh, and selling that product out, to, out there. They're essentially taking what would be scrap garbage or something downcycled and they're upcycling it. Amazing. Um, and mentioned zero waste. Also, it's been interesting to see the rise of sustainability in fashion schools. Right? So they're having either programs, certificates, or even full, uh, you know, full degrees in it. So I'm sure half of the group here is probably has gone to uh, fashion school at one of these. I encourage you to go back and see what they're doing. Right, what program do they have? Uh, maybe even be part of it, Show, share your industry experiences there. Preferred materials, I think, 
from, from a product group, this is almost where people jump to, is like how do I, you know, what's better, organic cotton, better cotton, blue sign cotton, you know, we, we get into the details. We're not gonna get into the details, we can, but um, catch me afterwards if, you, if, if you're really interested. But it just kind of shows that there's a whole bunch of different systems out there, uh, different preferred fibers, obviously in the cotton world, animal welfare, is a big one now, responsible sourcing of down and of wool, really chain of custody. How do you get all the way back to the farm and bring that chain of custody, make sure the animals are treated humanely from inception um, through the processing, and then how do you make sure that's going into your product? Uh, you know, on the chemical side, uh, toxicity is just a huge issue. Blue Sign, um, amazing input stream management system. Uh, all these companies going PFC free or, or essentially getting rid of the, the PFCs in, in, in some way. So th there's so much that's out there. We know it's really complicated, but from, from product group, this is where a lot of focus is and should be. So just kind of teeing up here, don't, don't get too deep, but I will give a shout out to the OIA, um, Outdoor Industry Association, Sustainable Working Group. The amount of work that's happened there in the 10 years is amazing. This is more of an eye chart. We, I, we talk for an hour on this, we won't. This is just an introduction to what supply chain is, but it's, well, I said supply chain. Supply chain, it's the wrong word, right? It's not. It's, it's not a chain, because that's not linear. Um, you call it a network. It's kind of a network. It's, it's probably more of a web. It's so interconnected anymore. It's, it's, it's very interconnected. Um, so supply web, supply network, value network, whatever it is, I'm not sure, but it's not a supply chain. So really quickly, let me do a quick time check here. Um, probably won't have too much time to get into this, but I really just want to introduce the, the terminology here of when you look at a supply chain, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. Tier one being your, your primary garment vendor. These ones doing the cut and sew. Um, tier two is your material production. Generally, you're a fabric supplier. Tier three, you're back down into the yarns, and tier four, you are down into the farm or into uh, chemical pro processing. What is important to think about that is where are your risks in that? When you're in tier one and it's mostly cut and sew, working conditions um, are probably your number one concern, right? This is where social compliance plays a huge role. In tier two, yeah, there's a lot of workers there, but the environmental impact is enormous. That's where all the dying and finishings happen. That's primarily environmental. Companies now are just starting to work on these working conditions um, in tier two, and so it's not widespread. Whereas your primary garment factory is used to social audits at this point and is very used to it. Um, at tier two, it's not. We're just making those steps as an industry there today. And then as you go down the, the, the stream, raw material processing, there's a lot of uh, chemical usage in here. So this is where you can worry about uh, hazardous chemistry. And as you go down to material production, this is where you're really at an agricultural level for many cases or in your animal husbandry side uh, for wool, for down, so you have a whole bunch of different issues here in each bucket. It's, again, it's, and so we ask, we work with brands to say, where do you want to focus? Some people are just focusing right here. They don't even know that this exists. Other people want to get all the way down to here and be working on the farms, right? So every company, every brand may have a, a different point of view, something that means more to them, more risk in their supply chain, more risk of the product type they have. And so let's focus our energy on something that's more meaningful to you and your, and your company, instead of trying to do absolutely everything. Uh, where we are today, there, I guess on the negative side, 
you are, you're out, you're, you're a public image, right? And so all these organizations are rating you based on what you publish, um, what you publish on your website, your, any, any of your messaging, uh, what you did for Earth Day last week, right? Like, they're, they're taking this into, into account and they're kind of rating you uh, or just calling you out in many cases on, on different campaigns. On a more positive note, there's a lot of great things that are happening. Uh, United Nations, they've created these sustainable development goals. A lot of brands now are taking these, and this is at the highest level. You know, this is about country development in many ways. But brands are taking these and saying, hey, we're working on, say, number 14. Our objectives with things that we're doing right now by designing this product and, and supplying this product is actually supporting that initiative right there. So they're tying it in. Really cool. Um, we talked about the reports, you know, we used Adidas here, calling all creators. That's a sustainability report. It's also really cool to see smaller companies here, Nisolo, for example. They don't have this huge elaborate 20-page report. They've got a, just an impact report. It's, a, it's, it's their website. Um, but they're showing artisan craftsmanship that's happening, how they manage their factories. Uh, and it's, this is a, a completely opposite view, but they're showing it from their point of view that's impactful to their customers. And it's, it's really cool to see that diversity between the two. And then 10 years ago, we weren't having these conversations. It was all behind closed doors. It was risk management. When you talk about risk management, you, you don't want to open yourself up to, to more risks. So you don't talk about it. Well, we're almost at the stage of, of big data and sustainability. So we can actually evaluate brands over all these different metrics and scorecards and everything. And there's actually, we can compare again, how you do against the industry, how you do about against the outdoor industry, how do you do against the apparel industry or footwear industry as a whole. So uh, Hig Index is, is one of the big tools uh, from the Sustainable Apparel Coalition who, who, who's leading that. But again, I want to think more about the macro shift. We went from being behind closed doors to Industry benchmarking. We're almost at the stage of big data here. It's really amazing. <laughs> so problem is tons of activities out there, uncoordinated. The birds are going everywhere. Uh, Joel Makeover from Green Biz gave a great keynote speech at this summer Outdoor Industry Association. He was a kickoff. He, he was a keynote speaker to the industry, to the outdoor retailer. Right? It was a sustainability person doing the full kickoff to the entire group. And, and he used the word of these random acts of greenness, and it really stuck with us. And so in and of themselves, each one of these is super positive, and we encourage them. But uncoordinated and without working towards a common goal or uh, bringing that into, into focus, we start to see a lot of these start to fade away. You know, they're your pet project, and when you leave or your management doesn't buy into it, they kind of go away. Real quickly, look at, the, at the, the culture of sustainability companies. This goes back to the fact that not every company is the same. We talked about innovation from Nike. You look at Patagonia who just, there's no issue that they don't tackle, right? So they look at it from a mission-driven and try to innovate as well. You look at Tom's, a mission-driven company. You look at something like VF who is, is very tactical. They're really operational efficient. So they're really taking that a quantitative approach in a big way, in a great way. It's just a different approach. You know, throw a few more other brands out there. And this is us putting, this is our kind of take, again, based on public literature generally, of, of how people approach it. Um, there's no right or wrong to any of this, right? It's just that everyone has a different approach to tackling the issue. And so our big view is 
is, is try to integrate this in. You need to have this unified vision. If you don't have a goal that's set up out there, you're not going to achieve it. Um, you need a commitment from your company. You can't just go out and say, oh, let me just put a little bit of recycled into the board chart, right? You need a longer term commitment to actually work towards it. Uh, uh, KPIs, right? You have to have measurable, has to be measurable. Collaboration, whether it's within the industry like this or within your company cross-functional, you can't do it as a designer you, in, a sole, you know, in, a, in a silo. You need sourcing development, you need logistics, you need company management, right? It's gotta be cross-functional. That's where you really make some impacts. And let's try to co coordinate all these random acts of greenness into something that actually amplifies your brand and brings brand value to you as opposed to essentially the random acts. And this is what we'll kind of jump into a little bit more in the workshop later, is at the basic minimum level, you need to manage risk. But I mentioned earlier, there's optimization. How do you kind of take those KPIs and go 5% more, 5% better, 5% better? But really, here's the goal. How do you innovate? How does this become a pillar of your company and use it as a lens of innovation and actually make leaps, make impact instead of doing less harm? So after lunch, we'll do a workshop. Um, we have a really fun exercise that gives you a perspective. Like when things happen in your, in your supply chain, you have a job function, but you have to look at it not just from your job, but look at all the other stakeholders that are, that are engaged in that, in that issue and, and just visualize it from a different perspective. Uh, the, the, the rest of the, the workshop, we're gonna look a little deeper on public perception of your company and then what are the actions you're doing? And then also, uh, you know, kind of have a lot of idea generation, how to amplify this within your own company. So we're using something here, and this is not, we don't have some proprietary tool. This is like a quick five-minute exercise that we'll do in the workshops. Um, we're not, we, we didn't create some new tool that we're going to go try to adopt here. Uh, but essentially, we're looking at all, the, of all these different elements of what we, would be bucketed under sustainability. Which ones as a company do you want to be, just do the basic minimum on and be compliant? Which ones do you want to do more? And what are the one or two that you really want to amplify, bring brand value, and then focus your energies on? What does that mean for you? What is your brand different than your brand and why? And one of the things we'll talk about there is, is the topic of greenwashing. So let's take this value chain as an example. Let's say that is where your public perception is. You've communicated all these things or goals, this is what you want to do. But you know what? That's where we are. That's the reality of what we are. Well, that's what we would call greenwashing. That's the gap. And so what we want to do is identify some of that with, it, with everyone and try to figure out how to shrink that gap. What are the opportunities there to actually say what we do and do what we say? And that's what we'll be exploring. And... Uh, Thank you. Uh, James, Sabine, and I will be here the next few days, so 